What's up guys? Hope you're having a great day. So I have been talking with several really great physician entrepreneurs in recent episodes. And today I'm excited to share one of those conversations with one particular physician entrepreneur who's really knocking it out of the park. I think what you'll learn from her example is that physician entrepreneurship is about solving problems and facing fears and really leaning into them. Today in the healthcare world, I know there's a lot of problems out there and a lot of them aren't getting solved. And so I think physicians are uniquely positioned to take back control from the healthcare system and to lead the charge on solving some of these big problems that are out there. And I think really it comes down to physician entrepreneurship as a solution to some of these problems. So I think from listening in today, you're going to really see that in my guest and hopefully come away motivated from hearing her story. So my guest today is Dr. Renee Dua. Renee is a practicing nephrologist in Southern California at a practice which she founded from scratch over 20 years ago. Along the way, she's been able to find the time and capacity to create several health tech startup businesses, including one that's grown to several hundred million dollars. And even more importantly, she's a mother to three children and a wife and business partner with her husband, Nick. So I really think you're going to enjoy our conversation, and I'm excited to introduce that to you now. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into that. Renee, how's it going? Good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I have, I know we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. I really look forward to talking about some of the entrepreneurship and business ventures you have going on. You got a lot of stuff going on that's really cool and a lot of, a lot of great success. But before we get into all that, I'm really curious if you could share going back in time and maybe thinking about early in on your training. So you're a practicing physician now, but thinking back to like earlier or on in your training or maybe even early career, like when you were at that point in your life and you were thinking about your future then, did you at that point realize you were going to someday become an entrepreneur and have all these business ventures going on at that point in your life? Or was it something different? I think I've actually always been a bit entrepreneurial and it sounds a little ridiculous in the ways that I was. 30 years ago. To give you an example, when I was a resident and a fellow in training, training to become a kidney doctor, I was very enterprising about how I stored patient records or how I rounded or the efficiency with which I got things done. I hated wasting paper even then, right? To give you an example. And by then we had we had Blackberries, right? That was the the phone or even those little flip phones and you could keep little records and notes and I had ways of increasing and improving my efficiency or doing things a little better even then, right? When I graduated from my fellowship at USC, I did interview for jobs and I realized I would have a hard time working for someone else because I wanted to design a medical practice that allowed me to spend time with patients, improve their health outcomes but not have to use, for example, paper charts and be forced to spend five minutes with one patient and 40 minutes with another, or not be able to use some time having a phone call with a patient instead of dragging them in. So I had those sorts of illustrious thoughts way back when, again, 30 years ago. I also didn't, I, when I started my own practice, I had no patients. So I had to grow a patient base and I would do primary care calls. So I would do emergency room call, which meant that any patients who came in that didn't have an assigned doctor, I accepted and I admitted to the hospital the next day. And when you do work like that, it's grueling work. There's no doubt about it, but you learn a lot about how to take care of patients efficiently, who needs to be in the hospital, who needs help outside the hospital, which patients you can actually include in your own outpatient private practice. And so I did a lot of those kinds of things to start my career. So I would say, yeah, I was never going to be an employee per se of someone else's vision of how I wanted to see patients. I was always going to do it my way. 
did I think I was going to start companies that expanded through the nation and deliver hundreds of thousands of doctor visits? No, I didn't, mm-hmm. see, I didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you had some of those characteristics, like you were saying, like you had, you're into efficiency and problem solving, and you had pretty firm ideals and you had like a vision that was pretty strong. And those are solid entrepreneur characteristics or traits or whatever that I think a lot of people have those and they don't quite connect it to entrepreneurship, especially physicians. There's a lot of these characteristics that are common, I see, and, and they're great. They're fantastic for entrepreneurship, but sometimes it takes a little bit of a nudge. So did you get, did you start into private practice right away? What was it like for you right after training? So actually, I moonlit through my entire residency and fellowship. We were allowed to do that then. A lot of the credit for how, quote, enterprising or illustrious I might have been, how I, how I referred to myself, came from those experiences. When you graduate from medical school, you have a couple initials behind your name. When you graduate from residency and fellowship, you have a couple more years of experience. But it was the moonlighting that really gave me the confidence to say, hey, I can try to do this on my own. I've seen people do it and I can do it. So while I did interview at places like Kaiser or for other doctors, what I realized is I can figure out, I'd saved a bunch of money for moonlighting. I can figure out how to hire one person and I myself can see patients in an office setting and rent some space and start off with one patient and two patients and three. So that's honestly how it started. The vast majority of my time in the beginning was spent on that ER panel call, developing a practice where I grew, I still, to this day, that's been nearly 25 years, I still see some of those same patients, if you can imagine, from that ER panel, right? They've been alive and they followed me through my career. So in the beginning, it was a lot of the grunt work of building a practice that then needed things like QuickBooks and an office employee manual and benefits and advertising and marketing and credentialing and contracting. So in the beginning, it was a lot of grunt work and a ton of mistake making, right? So many mistakes. I can spend the hour we have together sharing the number of completely idiotic things I did too. But it was a roundabout way of getting to a practice that I saw patients in three or four times a week in the afternoons when I was done rounding on patients in the hospitals in the morning. And it became very busy, particularly because number one, I was the only female nephrologist, the only female kidney doctor in my entire neighborhood, which is alarming. And also I am fluent in Spanish and kidney disease really affects the underserved profoundly. So I, I became very busy because of those two qualifications. Yeah, I can imagine. And your neighborhood is pretty big, right? Humongous. The I think of my Valley neighborhood is, is, yeah, my neighborhood is 15 houses. Yes. The San Fernando Valley is a huge part of LA and there are in now, there are probably 84 kidney doctors in a 10 square mile area, 84. That's wow. a lot. That's basically one on every other, every yeah. two corners, right? Yep. And even still, I'm one of probably five women. I think there's a lot of data and literature that shows that when patients are taken care of by women, their outcomes are better, which is actually newer data. But the Spanish <clears throat> was a very quick way for me to grow my practice because Many of these patients were seeing doctors who could not communicate with them without a caregiver present or, frankly, just went in, had no clue what was happening and left. And that, unfortunately, is how kidney disease progresses. So it helped me grow my practice a lot. Yeah, I think from a business, I guess, terminology standpoint, it's like you found your niche and your unique skill sets that tied in with your expertise and uh, we're able to really leverage that for the benefit of the good of the people that you were serving. And that that's right up the alley of entrepreneurship. It's also another yet another thing that I think physicians have a unique, they're uniquely positioned for is that there there's this expertise that's already been developed and yes. everybody has their own 
additional flavors of expertise added onto it. Like you're, you were just describing some of yours, but everybody has their own little unique spin on expertise. In addition to just knowing how to practice medicine, yes. that makes you even better positioned to be able to do this whole entrepreneurship thing. But as you said, it's not like all roses and sunshine, it's mistakes and failures and one of my favorite books is it's failing forward is what it's called. Right. I think in a perfectionist, we live in a perfectionist culture, it yes. feels, and I think it's challenging sometimes. And I think particular with physicians, it's maybe in training emphasize, you know, that failures are not accepted or unacceptable. And I guess in, in a patient care situation, like you want to do That's right. the, the best possible thing at all times. So you do have to have high standards, but there has to be some in business. It's like learning comes through trial and error and failures and making mistakes. Did you, was it, did that catch you off guard at all? Or were you already positioned with your lean towards this and, or was the vision so strong that you were able to just power through all these failures? No, it's it, when I make mistakes, it catches me off guard today right? And it's still something that bugs me. I try very hard not to make mistakes. And I think us doctors, when we make mistakes, we can hurt people. So it's an ingrained part of our genetic code that we don't want to make mistakes. We're afraid of mistakes. We're afraid of failure. Since we were in third grade, we were trying to get good grades so that we could become doctors. We mm -hmm. had to get high. And there was no opportunity to fail. And those of us that made it through into college and through medical school and are practicing doctors, the vast majority of us, of course, there are always those brilliant people who were number one in your class and they never put any effort and they're all plastic surgeons now. And that's wonderful. But those of us who were not that smart, but were capable and hardworking, any failure could have cost us the road to be becoming a doctor. And I think it is very hard to have the confidence to fail. And it's also very expensive. Going to medical school, I went to a private, very expensive medical school. I walked out with a lot of loans. And it is, it's a lot of privilege I come from, too. I want to be clear about that, right? I come from parents who had money, who said, okay, you don't have to pay us back. And I was moonlighting, so I was paying back my loans, right? I could do that. And... It, it takes some guts and some courage, but I also had the opportunity to fail forward mm -hmm. to your point. Not everybody gets that. I had it and I took advantage of it. So I think that's all important for you to know it, but it's very, it's very hard to make mistakes when you're even in my last company at Heal. I was, if you were to ask people who worked for me, I was so annoying about certain things because I was like, if we don't answer this question from a patient a on a ticketing system, we used a ticketing system to deal with patient support requests. When we make patients wait, they could get sicker and they could end up in the emergency room or worse, they could die. So there has to be like a constant effort to do great work. And when you're not in medicine, that almost seems paralyzing and exhausting, right? It, it seems like I had almost too much work ethic. But it came from this place of worry for patients, right? And any mistake I make, it, it's what is the ramification of this mistake? What could go wrong? Let me think about it very thoroughly before I make this change or make this move because I could hurt somebody. I think that philosophy, it evades our life. And it really makes doing what I did especially gutsy to some extent. Yeah, it creeps into other areas. And it does. I think it's also... if managed correctly, I guess it's a positive because accuracy improves and there's a lot of benefits and that come from, especially when you're dealing with a life in this situation, you gotta, you want to have high standards, but yes. it can, on the flip side, I think it can become paralyzing. And what's interesting to me is the system that of healthcare right now, I think a lot of what is paralyzing physicians in the big, and I when I say the system, I mean a big monster healthcare system. Like a lot of physicians are burning out and having trouble and not really loving their work or maybe even hating their work. And I think a lot of a part of what is paralyzing them is this whole idea of not wanting to take risk and 
maybe lean towards perfectionism and it's like anchoring them even harder to this system of healthcare that is actually causing them to reduce their levels of healthcare in some instances. Like it's making it harder to deliver quality care, yes. but it's just, I think it comes with awareness. It seems like you're pretty aware of this kind of thing. And I think when it's dangerous is when you're not aware at all. Yeah. I mean, we also in medical school, we're not given any training on yeah. running a business or frankly, forget about running a business. You took on all these loans. They have to be paid back. Even the understanding of how that affects your credit if you can't pay them back or the kind of stress. I have friends, I've now been in practice almost 20 something years. I have friends who have still not paid off their loans. That's astounding. Yeah, you know? that's great. It's crazy, right? And I'm talking, I had about $100,000 in loans. I have friends who had $300,000 in loans. When you start your life with that kind of weight on your back, the risk taking becomes a different conversation. So we don't learn how to manage money. We don't have people who we, we are taken advantage of by people who think we are going to make a lot of money and nobody goes into medicine to be rich. Even in places like plastics, where mm. you're dealing with a very unusual clientele who could sue you or whatever, Lord knows where that could go, right? Or the competition alone. It is really a thing of a, a courage and guts. And I'll also say right now, 60% of doctors finish medical school and go and work for somebody simply because they don't have the courage, the guts, the know-how, the interest, whatever the reason is. And though those 60%, they are, they become a part of a wheel. And the, you know, what is known very well at Kaiser is the golden handcuffs. Kaiser says, you have to work here for seven years and we'll pay off your medical school loans. But for those seven years, it could be that you're seeing one patient every 15 minutes. You have this, you have Kaiser in some places can be really great. In other places, people don't, doctors don't last more than two or three years, right? Because of their own retention issues. Or Optum, which is effectively collecting doctors in every, it's wild what United Healthcare is doing to, to hire doctors. So I think that we go out and we become a part of the wheel because of our own inability to understand or our inability to have the courage or take, take the opportunity. I think it creates burnout, but it also creates he, this golden handcuff problem where you have no choice. You have mm -hmm. to pay off these loans. You have to provide for your family. And here's the job that's going to pay you now that you're this far in the hole. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was interviewing Dr. Jordan Grummet several episodes ago, and he's he was a hospice physician and wrote a book about end of life, yeah. his experiences with people late in their life. One of the his obser observations was that one of the biggest regrets people have late in life is that they didn't lean into those big, scary things that they knew potentially could be good things, but it was too scary to do. And so they just didn't do it. That ends up being a lot of people's biggest regrets. Yeah. And so it's, you don't want to have regrets. And so you've taken some of these risks and like you've started some companies and I know you've had some mistakes along the way, but what was your first big risk that you would consider that you, I mean, you started a risk with starting your practice, but was that, would you consider that your first big risk? That would, that would be my first for sure. That would be my first. Did that sure. feel big at that time? Humongous. Because you had the student loans and you're like, I don't even have patients. Exactly. I don't have patients. I have loans. Were you single I, at the time? Yes. Okay. Yes, so it was, was just, you were like. Just me. So I, that was the good news is I didn't have children or responsibilities that were at home per se, but I did buy a condo somewhere in there. I bought a condo and I did that because I didn't want to keep paying rent and I was moonlighting and I wanted to start building some kind of portfolio, some kind of equity in something. So I, I started this practice and I think I would agree that was my biggest risk. I think the other big risk about it, though, was I was so young, I was the only girl, and I was up against what I thought were big head honchos. There were these men who had been in practice for 30 years, and they had already built their networks of referral sources. And I had to effectively go and sit in the, we had doctor's lounges back then, right? 
having to go and sit in the doctor's lounge and try to convince people to change their referral patterns. And another thing, as we're discussing generalizations about doctors, they don't like to change their habits, right? They're comfortable with Dr. X seeing their patients. They know the note they're going to get. They know that doctor's not going to refer their patient to another doctor that could cause them to lose their patient. There's a lot of language in practice and in the practice of medicine that takes a human being and makes them a thing that has value. And how you treat that thing with value is a part of a business cycle that when I talk about it, I feel gross again to this day, right? We're talking about business, but humans and their inherent value on how they make you money is not really what a clinician should be thinking about. But that's what these referring doctors think about, right? That's how they think about it. I had doctors who would tell me, primary care doctors, if I refer you a patient, you should pay me. Right. And I was like, oh, what? You should want to work with me because I'm going to take great care of your patients and they're not going to wind up on dialysis. Yeah. What happened to the Hippocratic Oath? Exactly. And not the Hippocratic Oath. Lord knows we've got plenty of examples of people who don't understand Mm -hmm. what they promise to do. But what about not breaking the law? What about yeah. Yeah, you the same. Right. You have a license. We think about all these bodies in, in, in medicine that allow you to practice medicine with credentialing and contracts. So many of them are just about making jobs and there's so much nonsense until you have the one jackass, sorry, who breaks the law, right? And makes mockery out of protecting human life. So I remember going up against all these, and they're all men too, right? Many of them who had known me since I was a kid. They were friends with my parents in the city and in the community and They were from the same, I'm from India, they were from the same culture. And so they were like, how does this kid have so much guts to stand up against us and try to get us to, she has no experience, but yet she wants us to give her our patience and she may not know what she's doing or they're jealous or they're late, whatever. So that was, I thought it was really a gutsy thing. The other thing that I did at that time that I thought was gutsy was I started, as I started growing, I started requesting opportunities to be a part of hospital administration. So I wanted to head up the peer review experience, right? As I started seeing doctors and how they practice, I noticed, wow, these some of these patients are not getting the standard of care. We're missing opportunities to give IV fluids and someone's going into worse kidney failure, right? Like these things need to be standardized in a hospital. And from things like peer review and quality control to actually becoming chief of medicine and managing all of those doctors, right? Many of these things actually hurt my private practice so much because these same doctors that didn't want to change their referral patterns were also like, I don't want you reading my notes. I don't want you seeing how I practice. I don't want you telling me the standards of care. Who the hell are you? You're a shrimp. I don't want to have you telling me what to do. So those were some of the other things. And I was fearless, right? I distinctly remember having these conversations with my father and mother, and they would say, take it easy. Why are you so gutsy? Just, you don't have to do all this. And I was like, you should believe in me. Back off. Let me, I want to be fearless. I want to see what happens here. Where was that coming from? I think culturally, again, my parents, by the way, are both extremely entrepreneurial to their credit, but I don't, I think they didn't want me to get hurt. Frankly, they didn't want me to be a doctor. They were very much, this is a dog eat dog occupation, especially if you want to go into private practice and we don't want you to get hurt. We don't want people to hurt you. We don't want people to think you're foolish. We don't want people talking poorly about you. We want to make sure you get married, and I, which 25 years later, that's what you're worried about. But th- these were all interesting parts of my own upbringing that I'm sure many people in the Asian community for sure have heard and listened to. Where my parents, I don't think it's that they didn't believe in me, but they were worried for my success. They had good I intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Did, how did it make you feel when those other physicians were treating you like that? Did fire you up at all? Or was it neutral? Or did it negatively impact you? I think I was a little intimidated, to be fair. I was. I was a little intimidated by the snickering in the hallways and the nasty comments. And again, remember, there were no girls. There were no mm-hmm. girls. There, We talk about things like sexual harassment. I had plenty of that. Yeah. Plenty, right? Enough to go around. 
the plenty of get me this, aren't you the nurse? Here are my charts, go put them away. Plenty of that. But so I think that was a little intimidating. And I have it in fellowship and residency too. So it's not like I wasn't accustomed to it. But there was some little part of me that was like, put your head down, do your work. Something's going to change, right? 25 years later, it's a little better, not much, pathetically, but it's a little better. Smarter than it needs to be. It's a joke, right? But we don't, us girls don't have enough male allies, right? For many reasons. But I think I somewhere I was like intimidated by pursuing my ultimate goals of building this practice that would get, would pick up and get very busy. Mm -hmm. And you just work through it and. What choice do you have? You've got right. you've got a rent. You've got someone at the front office answering the phone has to be paid. Her life depends on me. It's interesting that you describe that as your big, huge risk. I think people, if they looked at like your resume, they would be like, "Oh man, this company you started later that did you you know really well. That's going to be your big risk." But in reality, it was like you started a small practice. Probably zero didn't have a lot. Of, probably not it a lot of zero upkeep. to one. Yeah, that first step probably was one of the biggest. And you had debt yeah, at the time. Was, and Yeah, that was hard. The scaling of the company, by that time, I had a husband who I always say took a chance on me. He heard an idea I had to scale back. I, so I should give some context. When I met my husband, and I had already been practicing for quite some time, I was crazy busy by the time I met my husband. Your, I was so, your practice we were just talking about had grown that's to the point. One. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. I was so busy that I would get complaints from the parking lot valet, the attendants, that your patients are waiting in the parking lot because you don't have enough room in the office, in your office, and this doesn't work for us. I had to go and get a bigger office space and take rent out on a bigger space, which sucked. I wasted so much money. But I was so busy, and I met my husband and we started trying to build a family and I had a come to come to Renee with myself to say, you're, I was having a lot of trouble having children. You're having trouble having children. You're not really a great wife. It's impacting your practice. What, what's going to give here? What's going to give? I didn't want to give up on my patients. I didn't want to lose this great partner I had met and married. And I definitely wanted to have children. So we, when we started having kids, one night we had a crisis and we went to see a pediatrician at 445 on Friday in our neighborhood. And she said to me, look, your son is really sick. I don't know what it is. I can't help you. The office closes at five. Go to the ER. So I went to the ER and in my mind, I was thinking you couldn't, this doctor couldn't spend 15 more, you know, what the, what, these are my people. Like you can't spend 15 minutes with me to help me. I'm panicking. My son had a very high fever and he was born prematurely. So it was a lot on my mind. So I went to the emergency room of one of the hospitals I moonlit at and waited eight hours, hmm. saw a friend, physician, ER physician, who was a friend who was like, Renee, you're a doctor. Why are you here? You don't know how to take care of this. And I said to him, I don't want to be a doctor to my mom, to my kids. I want to be a mom to my kids. By the time we got seen, it was hours and hours. By the time we had gotten seen, he was better. His fever, it yeah. never best. My husband drove me home. We were both frustrated and upset. We had an other kid at home with a brand new nanny. And we, I said, I recognize that I could do better here. I, this is on me. I could have done better. And what I need is some kind of app, like Ubers go on and off. Uber drivers go on and off and they see... They take rides whenever, you know, they're available. I can see patients when I'm available. If you want to build me an app, my husband's an engineer. If you want to build me an app, me and you, we can see patients when I'm available and I can back away a little bit from how busy I am as a kidney doctor, right? We can do house calls in our neighborhood. And that's the story of how we built Heal. What I think is so hilarious about what I'm telling you is I used to think I was very busy. And I was overwhelmed by how hard it was to build a private practice and the intimidation of dealing with all these jerks. And I used to think that was hard until I saw what Nick built me and we scaled that company to 13 states and 300,000 house calls and 130 doctors that worked for me. And, you know, that was busy. <laughs> You're like, whoa. Really hard work. But interestingly, 
it was my private practice and the belief that Nick had in me that gave me the confidence to <clears throat> fail forward in, in some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good foundation to go into because yeah. a lot of it is similar skill sets. You're playing on a bigger playing field there, but was it a, so you had this idea and your husband was supportive and that's huge, I think. And I think a lot of times people have these really good ideas that could potentially be like home run and they have negative Nancy's around them and they're like, nah, you can never do that or that, blah, 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 all this kind of thing. And that's just a killer for that kind of, and it's just, there's no chance, but it could have been a home run, but you had good players on your team with your husband and particularly, and he fanned the flame and that started it all. And then did it take some time and just, or was it just explosion from the get go, like super fast growth as soon as you got the, he developed the app, right? So yeah, he and a friend developed the app. It wasn't super fast at all. And, and I will say them us doctors, we, we have a very high divorce rate, right? We don't necessarily choose partners. And with Nick, I, it's the most important decision in my opinion that you make in your life as your partner, if you choose to have one. And I made a, a very good decision, a very smart, frankly, the best decision I've ever made. And I did have a partner and not only was Nick an equal partner as a parent and whatnot, he was an equal partner in founding a company. What Nick's specialty is business development and fundraising. We built that app. We pitched that app to a couple celebrities, right? People like Lionel Richie and so on. And within a week and a half, we had a million and a half dollars in funding for hmm. a company to scale. I took a look at what Nick did in that app and I said, this is so sophisticated. It's so easy to use. Yeah, I could be doing house calls with you and I could scale back being a nephrologist. But the fact is every person should have primary care in their home. Nobody should be going to a doctor's office on Friday at 4.45 being shuttled to an ER with their sick child. Nobody should ever have to go through that. That's a miserable thing to do. We should take this app. We should scale this company. We should take insurance, right? And we should take care of people. And so that million and a half dollars in funding that we had once the app was functional allowed us to build a dashboard, hire an, an engineer that would build software right around that app and start allowing us to dispatch me to doing those house calls. And I made a doctor's kit and I had little supplies in that doctor's kit and I made Nick drive me, right? I had to teach Nick how to do vitals. Like all, it, it was a very exciting process. But the thing is right now we talk a lot about healthcare because we're in the, still in a pandemic and billions of dollars have flooded health tech. When Nick and I built Heal, it was 2014, 2015. Nobody knew a pandemic was coming. And the only people that really wanted house calls, the only people that wanted to Uberize or democratize house calls were rich people who were like, yeah, I'd want, I'd golf a lot and I need to be able to get around my primary care doctor. I just want to see an orthopedic surgeon. And I was like, convincing someone like that, that everybody should have the benefit of care at home. It's hard. He's already mm -hmm. rich. He doesn't care if everybody can have a house call. He wants the house call, right? So funding that company was very difficult. We applied and won something called the Montgomery Summit, which here in Los Angeles was a competition, a pitch. And we won, I think, half a million dollars or less, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so many people were so excited by what we were building from that pitch that money, that Montgomery Summit money turned into an, a rolling note, which we managed to get about $13 million of funding into. So that's a lot of money on a what was then a pretty great idea, thanks to someone like Nick, right? So it's very important, very important part of our partnership there. So he was the one that kind of quarterbacked that pitch. and That's right. I was on stage. I was pregnant. <laughs> I think I got pregnant right away. 2015, I had another kid. And we pitched and it was Nick's smart fundraising skills that grew that, that pitch into what honestly turned into a series A in about a year and a half of trying to run heel. From there, we had to get in network with 
insurance companies, we had what's called real-time eligibility. You could scan your insurance card we, and we would tell you your house call would be the cost of your copay. Why not use it? You didn't, you, we had a, a very cheap cash pay price, but we had the ability to use Anthem by then. So you could use your Anthem insurance. I think it's now called Elevance or something. You could use your insurance to have a house call. We had asked and begged and begged and got Google to give this to their employees, right? Google at one point was driving 18% of our growth. So we, with that money, we were able to do a lot of interesting things in the state of California, expand through LA, launch in San Francisco and San Diego. That's what we did with that money. And that got us under the guise and the, got us, got VCs interested in us so that we were able to continue pitching and continue getting investor capital. Because of course, house calls are a very expensive, house calls through software is a very expensive endeavor. And then the pandemic hit and I imagine that's a well-positioned business for a global pandemic. Not that virtual business, the ability to have tech in general was accelerated in most instances. And and that's what happened for you guys too, right? So what was interesting as we developed Heal was we were thinking, again, way before the pandemic about how do we, we can't constantly send doctors for house calls. It's too expensive. Yeah. How do we get people off the house call and into the video, into the camera? And so what we did was almost like a geek squad experience where we would deliver that first house call, do a very thorough visit. And then we had built software that did one-touch telemedicine, remote monitoring, right? We had won the CES Remote Monitoring Award or the CES Innovation of the Year. I don't remember what it was called, but we had remote monitoring. So we would take a family and say, here's how to use the Heal app. Push here. Here's how we can see you on video. In a month, let's go over your labs on video. We would also say, we were here to see Junior. Junior, he had a fever. Here's a thermometer. It's Bluetooth connected. Take Junior's temperature over the next five days, and we're going to see how the temperature looks and make sure that the temperature is going down or the blood, that we could do that for older people with their blood pressure and their blood sugar. And then we could say, looking at that data, let's do a video visit and go over your vitals. You need to have better blood sugar control or you're eating poorly or whatever it was. So we had already created systems to have virtual visits with our patients after those house calls. Again, way ahead of a pandemic. When the pandemic hit, because we had already put all of this in place, we were able to on a turn, on a, just overnight, I will never forget it. Overnight, we went virtual, right? We called every single patient for the next several months and said, your visits will be virtual, right? We can't come because we're afraid we'll spread COVID and we want to just get some more information before we start delivering house calls again. Yeah. And that, that everybody became overnight, like down with the virtual. It was because that's how our business was. We were trying to push zoom encounters before they were cool. Nobody knew what zoom was. And they're like, what do you mean? Don't, can you send me an instruction manual and all that stuff? And then it all happened. And then everybody was like, yeah, we'll zoom. Or they're asking us if we zoom, I'm like, what in the world is happening? And then it just, it, everybody's now to this day, I think Zoom is here to stay and it's yes. kind of like the the next big thing. But so y'all, you're still involved in the company now or you exited during that process? Uh, kind of both Nick and I, so we accepted about $200 million in venture capital into Heal. And the most recent was a Series D from Humana, which is a very large Medicare insurance plan. And Humana is looking now to acquire the company. So when they came in and they started really managing the operations, they made a few changes. For example, they didn't want to see children anymore. They didn't want to operate in the state of California anymore because they don't have a big footprint here. And so Nick and I had a talk with them and said, look, we understand you have a lot of money in the company. You want to operate it the way you think it should be operated. There's very little for us to do here, right? We want to be founders. We want to take charge and ownership. So we'll be advisors for a little while and we'll step out and do our own thing. And that's what we did about a year and a half ago. And now, you know, it, it, it's, it's likely that Humana will acquire that company, which is great. It's wonderful news to have an exit. And those patients will hopefully continue to get great care in the states in which Humana is operating Heal. And then Nick and I stepped away to do 
something else, something a little different, but still in the health tech space. Yeah. So that's, that's your latest thing you got going on. You want to tell us about that? Sure, sure. So in the next iteration of what I wanted to do, I shouldn't say in the next, in the same vein of what I've always wanted to do, I like working directly with patients. I think that uh, to really have transformative care for patients, you have to work with them directly. You can't necessarily go through an insurance plan or a hospital system because unfortunately the incentives for great care are perverse, right? Hospitals and insurance plans have to answer to shareholders and people who want to see money on the books. Unfortunately, healthcare is expensive and it takes a while to make money. And so what I've always been focused on is how do I help the most patients directly? Even at Heal, we were, before we were in network with insurance, we were a direct-to-consumer product. We still were upon me leaving. So at this time, I've also been a caregiver for my parents who've been going through quite a bit physically and mentally. And they say often, Renee, I need my medications filled. Renee, can you come with me to this doctor's appointment? Renee, I need to get labs done. Can you help me look at my labs when they're resulted or whatever? And my husband kept seeing all the jobs I was doing, all the tasks I was carrying out every single day for my parents. And I said, I need to automate myself. So many of these things do not require a human being making appointments refills, reminders, vitals that you can share, data you can share. Why is a human doing all of this, right? I don't need to be the interface. And Nick said, why don't we build that next, right? Why don't we do that next? And he actually called the company Renee, right? Because in his mind and in mine, everybody should have a Renee that coordinates and consolidates all this care for their loved one, right? Renee is about to go live in the next several weeks. It's actually a product together by Renee, where we have a free app, completely free for partners, right? I live with my mom or I live with my husband and he has some medical problems and I want to see what's going on with him, right? He can take his vitals. He can show me what medications he takes. It's a very slick piece of technology where you can take a panoramic view of your pill bottle. And from there, we can extract all the information, the name of the medicine, the date of the refill, the number of times it should be taken, set up all your reminders, the fact that you probably take that medication for high blood pressure, make sure you check your pressure to make sure that medication is working. It's all, again, coordinated and consolidated based on one photo of your pill bottle. And then reminders of you are high blood, you have high blood pressure and you're also overweight. Are you a candidate for medications to help you lose weight? Or your blood pressure doesn't look well controlled. Would you like us to help you make appointments or find you a specialist or whatever. So very much a caregiving assistant to consolidate and care for these tasks that are done, thousands of tasks that are done in between all these doctor's appointments. Yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds not very traditional medical. That's more of a, what I would consider a solid tech solution. And healthcare has a lot of old school stuff going on. And that's part of the benefit of those kinds of things and opportunity that exists there. So it sounds like a lot of your ventures have been really, I guess all of them have been like you saw these problems or challenges that existed in your world and you you came up with a solid solution and put it out there in the world. And that became your endeavor. Essentially, you're helping solve these big problems. Agreed. I like solving problems. I like seeing it work. I really like helping patients, right? I still see patients to this day. The kinds of patients I take care of, they're at the mercy of the healthcare system. Many of them are at a fourth or fifth grade reading level. They don't speak English, most. They have someone who's caring for them, but that person has a job. That person has children of their own. They're really almost the forgotten amongst us, right? They're getting older. They're not health literate necessarily, but they do have a smartphone, right? And they do use WhatsApp or they do use Facebook Messenger. And so there are little, they understand what YouTube is. So there are little things that you can do for them that help them to feel more involved in their healthcare and share information. And I love seeing that. I love seeing that happen. I love that when they get that intelligence, when they get 
that information, when they get that data, they actually act on it to do better, right? When they know why they take a pill and how many days to take it, and they're given a reminder that a refill is due and they can be delivered, they'll take their medicine, right? They just need a little helping hand. And I like that hand-to-hand combat that software can bring, right? This run around, I didn't want to build a medical practice again. That is very difficult work. I still have some PTSD from having all those doctors and NPs and PAs working for me. It, it was an enormous undertaking, right? Not to say I wouldn't do it again, but I needed to use software to scale more. That was important to me this time. So let's see what happens. Yeah, no, it sounds sounds like a cool idea. And I think entrepreneurship, that's the cool thing about entrepreneurship is you can you can kind of create anything. You start with a clean slate and you can also evolve over time. And most of the time it's not perfect from the get-go. It's you're doing tweaks and adjustments along the way. And that's just part of it. So I'm curious as we start to wrap up, is this, do you feel like this, you're like really doing what you love now? Like, how would you describe like your current state professionally right now? Are you like hitting it in terms of love and work? Are you, do you still feel like you haven't met your goals or I'm curious about the current state of how you feel about your professional success? Cause on paper, it looks like you're crushing it and that's how I would describe it. But I'm curious from your view. Yeah. So I'm like one of these annoying people that's never satisfied. <laughs> I, I was predicting this. Yeah. Again, doctor, right? That's why I did it. That's who we are. But the short answer is no. I have an enormous amount of stuff I want to do. The good news is when I worked at Heal, I considered Heal a child, right? I was pregnant or feeding somebody through that entire experience. And then I had Heal and I grew that company and I didn't want to let it go. And it was, it sucked the soul out of me. And on this new venture, I have been very good about setting some limits, right? I have been very good about taking care of myself, making sure I sleep, making sure I exercise and eat right and take good care of my kids. I'm around, I can work from home, right? That flexibility is very important to me. I'm home when my kids get home. I didn't grow up like that. I didn't ever see my parents. So I knew that I wanted to be a different kind of parent when when I became one. So those are some of the good things. Some of the negatives is are it's very hard to make changes in healthcare. The powers that be are so powerful. They have so much control and it's not in their interest. It's sick care. It's not healthcare. It is interesting to companies when you are sick because they can take advantage of coding your visit a certain way, yeah. making more money. And the whole thing is so grotesque, right? It's so disgusting. But it's the reality of what healthcare is, at least in America, right? It's a for-profit game of greed. And so it's very hard to make changes. And I'm one little person with a little bit of guts. Yeah. So I think... There is a lot to do. And I don't know that I'm so optimistic that I'll get a lot done, I, unfortunately, especially when you have all kinds of nonsense that's happening. Like you you read about Silicon Valley Bank, right? Yeah. Whatever incompetence that was based on, right? You heard about Theranos, right? All these things, there's not one health tech company that's actually improving outcomes. Not one. That's a joke. What are we all doing with that billions of dollars, Right. All COVID showed us is we don't take good care of people, especially when they're underserved. And so VCs and banks and private equity poured billions of dollars into what? Starting with Livongo being acquired by Teladoc only for them to write the entire thing down, mm. which will happen to almost every acquisition happening right now, whatever it is hitting the news, right? So... I think that it makes it very hard to make changes when there's so much foolishness and greed. And I think um, that's also like motivation, though, for physicians listening, I think are super smart and problem solving. Like, I think they probably could relate to a lot of the skills you have. And that is like desperately needed in the world of like business, not just medicine. And part of the problem is the business people now run the medicine Yes. And then they're screwing it up. That's right. And so we need more physicians to get in the business and get, have influence over That's that right. because they're yeah. clearly like 
not doing a good job no, of no. and in health policy, right? And yeah. in health policy, because you know what you see when you see that Medicare allows you to make profits off of being sick when you're a Medicare Advantage plan, which itself is a folly thing. We're having the wrong conversation. So I think that is where I'm a little more pessimistic, but I haven't given up. Yeah. I think you're doing great things. I think you've already done great things and I'm sure you'll do lots more in the future. You've clearly got a lot of good stuff going on. And the most impressive thing is that you've been able to work in the balance and some of the things that you would consider, like the family thing, that's huge. Being able to change course, like it's very difficult to change from the habits that are established from your childhood into your own parenting. That's incredibly difficult. So That I think is super impressive. Thank you for that. From my view. So keep up the good work. I'm sure people will be interested in kind of how things are going for you, especially with this new venture. What's a good spot where people can find out what you're up to or what's going on or different businesses that you have going on? Yeah, sure. I can be emailed anytime at Renee, R-E-N-E-E at Renee.com. Same spelling. And then our website is at Renee.com, R-E-N-E-E.com. So yeah, Anyone should feel free to contact me. I'm also on LinkedIn and I can be easily accessed there as well. Nice. Renee, it's been fun. I appreciate you coming on to chat Thank about you your so experiences. Much for the opportunity. Thank you. Bye-bye. Please know that anything I've said today in this podcast should not be considered advice. It is completely for educational and entertainment purposes only. It would be best to view me as just another guy talking about money on the internet. For advice, please consult your advisors. If you don't happen to have a financial advisor already, I happen to know a firm that's absolutely fantastic. It's actually the firm I started and currently run now, Ren Financial Planning. And we would love to get to know you better and see if we might be able to help. Feel free to reach out anytime to schedule an introductory meeting. You can find more info about us at www.renfinancial.com.